0: Lion Trust are the proud partner of the Athletics in the Boardroom podcast. Lion Trust have been an independent asset manager since 1995. Right now, they're giving you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash theathletic to find out more. Head towards your financial goals with Lion Trust. Now, this competition is only open to UK residents, and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Jackie Oatley and welcome to the latest episode of In the Boardroom, a brand new podcast series from The Athletic. In this episode, we're taking a trip down memory lane and we're looking at the rise and fall and rise again of Portsmouth football club from the Premier League, FA Cup triumph and European football to relegations, administrations and very nearly falling out of both the Football League and existence full stop. Ashley Brown was the chairman of the Pompey Supporters Trust around the time they fought a high court battle to buy the club back for the fans. In this conversation we explore that journey as well as hearing what it's like going from being a fan of your club to actually running it. I started by asking Ashley to remind us of Pompey's heady days in the Premier League and how it all started to unravel.
1: The first time around, we're probably in 2010, Pompey are in the Premier League. On the pitch, things have been going OK. We won the FA Cup 2008, played in Europe following season, obviously. Our highest ever finish in the, in the Premier League. But I think some fans started to get a little bit concerned about how this was all working financially. And I guess it was 2009, 2010, that some of those fans started to think, well, hang on a minute, we might have to do something about this at some point, this isn't sustainable. And that's when some people first set up the Pompey Trust. I think it was probably later in 2010 that more people started to understand that there was a problem, despite the fact in 2010, we were still runners up in the FA Cup off the pitch things were going wrong. In February 2010, we were put into administration, first and only Premier League club ever to be put into administration. I think that at that point in time, everyone realised we'd been living beyond our means.
0: Did you think it at the time that you were living beyond your means?
1: I was one of the people that did. But I think, as with most football fans, I mean, let's face it, most football fans, football's an escape. What you want to do is head to Fratton Park to see your team play at three o'clock on a Saturday or, or if you're a Premier League team, some other time in the week, probably. And it's escape from everything else that you have to deal with in your life. So they don't really want to understand about the finances and the governance of the football club. All they want to do is cheer on their team and hope they win.
0: Was there one moment you thought, hang on a minute, that's a bit weird?
1: I don't know for me if there was one moment. I mean, the Premier League back in 2010 was still pretty wealthy. People understood that it was a lot of money came in through television. But I guess most people just shrugged their shoulders and they thought that Sky TV were effectively subsidizing all of our players. But if you dug down into the accounts, the more you spoke to other people that were interested in knowledgeable in that area, the more you started to understand that this is a bit of a house of cards.
0: So when you were signing the likes of Peter Crouch and Jermaine Defoe, were you personally thinking, wow, it's great being in the Premier League because the Sky Money can fund all these kind of guys? Or were you... Already starting to think, "Mm, not sure about this.
1: You have to enjoy the moment. I remember at one point, a couple of those players you mentioned around that time, I think Pompey had five players called up for England in, in the same squad. You know, that's unheard of for us in our history. I supported my club for years and years never getting a chance to see his players play at Wembley and wondering if I ever would. And then all of a sudden we won the FA Cup, we were back there a couple of years later and I went to Wembley five times in a couple of years. So of course you enjoy it and of course you get carried away in the moment and you hope that everything's going to continue and everything's going to be rosy. But sadly for some of us, there was a nagging feeling in the back of our mind that it would all fall apart.
0: They were happy days in terms of what was happening on the pitch. Things were going well. At what point did you start to realise as a group of supporters that actually you might have to try and buy the club? I
1: think you sort of stepped forward then. So we've been through one administration and we came out of that. And actually, a little bit further down the line, I think we're probably in the summer of of, of 2011 now. A company called CSI take over Pompey. This is predominantly led by a Lithuanian guy. And there's great fanfare about their plans for, for football and you know their success at other businesses, and everyone thinks that this is a real turning point. In November 2011, there's an arrest warrant issued for the main guy through CSI for a bank fraud through Lithuania. The cynics amongst us were thinking, "Oh, here we go again." The optimists were probably thinking, "Well, you know, this might go away." But go forward a few months, early 2012, the football club is back in administration. We're back where we were two years ago. It's a real basket case of a club. Anybody worth their salt doesn't want to go near Portsmouth Football Club. That point in time was when we first started to talk about, well, what can we do to save our club? And then what happened? At that time, I happened to be chair of the supporters trust. And it became clear fairly quickly that there was no white knight going to ride in and save Portsmouth. We were going to have to do something about it. We set about trying to raise enough money to save the club. At the time, Trevor Birch, who's now chief executive of the Football League, was appointed the administrator and we built a very good relationship with Trevor quickly. He made it clear that we had a lot to do if we wanted to become the preferred bidder, but it was possible. And that's what we did for a number of months. We went out fundraising, we campaigned. The Pompey fans were fantastic. They rallied behind us. We, we had pledges. We got significant amounts of money into our escrow account. At the same time, we were trying to manage a land deal with some of the associated land around the club that had been sold off. We also had to start tackling a high court battle because we wanted to ensure that if we took over the club, that Fratton Park was part of the deal and one of the previous owners was hanging on to a charge over Fratton Park.
0: When you mention preferred bidder, what did that mean?
1: Yeah, it's the sort of terminology that they use in in administrations and particularly in football administrations. The administrator and of course the Football League as well want to find somebody that they're going to work with. They don't want to be sort of working in tandem with five or six different parties going through what can be a fairly laborious process to, to, to get it over the line. So what happens is the administrator will effectively name someone as a preferred bidder, and then you go down into a deeper dive of all the work that you have to do to satisfy the football league and to be able to take over the club. So it's that position that we were wrestling for. And late in 2012, Trevor Birch confirmed that we were preferred bidder. We were going into that more detailed work. But what we had to do then is try to win this high court battle because we couldn't afford £17 million for Fratton Park. We were unwilling to do the deal without Fratton Park, albeit the previous owner offered us various crazy leaseback deals in excess of £1 million a year, which we weren't going to do. For us to do the deal successfully, we had to win this court battle and we had to get Fratton Park for no more than £3 million. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to stack up.
0: And explain what happened next.
1: Two or three times we had appearances in the High Court that were adjourned. In early 2013, we had what was deemed to be the final High Court appearance. I was at a train station, actually, waiting to get on a train to to London to go to, to the High Court. I had a phone call from Ian McInnes, who was one of the president guys that we were working with and was to become the chairman of the football club. And he said, actually, they want to try and do a deal on the court steps. Don't go to the high court. Come to PKF, which is the administrators. There was a collection of of representatives from from our side, from the previous owner's side, and of course, the administrators and various lawyers, et cetera. We seemed to be getting closer. One of the, the PKF lawyers came into the room that we had assigned to us and said, look, I think we're pretty much there. All of the final bits are negotiated, but one of the previous owners wants to see a little bit more of a financial commitment from you guys if this deal is to be done. It was Ian McInnes again who said, well, tell him we'll give him another £5,000. I'll pay it out of my own pocket. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, you know, that's five grand. We've been talking about millions here. That's just not going to do it, is it, Ian? You know, How's that going to sway it? Five minutes later, the representative came in and said, Mr. Kushner says, thank you for your offer of 5000 That's fine. We can do the deal and you, you can keep your 5000 And it was just some strange gesture, which after 18 months of fighting with these people, I found completely bizarre. But that was it. We then had the chase across London and literally something out of a film that the lawyers are sort of rustling bits of paper up to the top table and handing them to the judge who's flicking through them. And I remember the judge said something along the lines of, well, I think, We've probably got the paperwork in order here for the supporters trust to take over the club, but I just need to be sure. So I'm going to adjourn for half an hour and go back to my quarters and look through all this properly. And the judge came back in and sort of gave the rubber stamp on everything and said, yeah, this is all okay. And you can progress with the takeover now. And within a, a week or so of that, we found ourselves as the owners of a football club, which was in an absolute mess and just about to be relegated to League Two.
0: How close did Pompey come to going out of business completely?
1: Hours, hours on a number of occasions. I think the one point that was closest is Trevor Birch, the administrator, gave us a call and said, right now, I don't have enough money to fulfil certain commitments. And if you want this administration to continue, you're going to have to help fund it. And some of the wealthier Pompey fans that had chipped in, at that point in time, Those guys dug into their pockets and pulled together a certain amount of money that Trevor said he needed to continue the administration. And that kept Pompey alive. If they hadn't have done that, the club would have disappeared. And to be fair to those guys, they did that with no expectation of ever getting the money back. The best they had was that if we were successful to take over, then that money would be converted to equity for them. And if it wasn't for that, the club would have disappeared. I mean, say it disappeared... We already had a plan B. We had a whole team of people looking at Phoenix Pompey should the worst case scenario happen. So Pompey would have survived, but we'd have probably started again at the bottom of the football pyramid and we'd be fighting our way back up.
0: Does your heart miss a beat when you think about that?
1: I can't imagine, really can't imagine life without Pompey. I mean, I've not known anything else other than sort of supporting Pompey and go and watch the team on a Saturday, even if I don't make every single game these days, it's a huge part of my life. And it's not just me. It's a huge part of lots of people's lives. And you saw that at Bury recently and Macclesfield, where clubs have disappeared. And at Bury, they've had to start again. At Macclesfield, they've had to start again. That getting torn from people's lives, you know, people were left in in tatters and people in, in emotional distress. I can't imagine what that must be like. I got close to having to imagine it but luckily I haven't had to go through it like some of the guys at Berry and Macclesfield and others have. Sol Campbell, an FA Cup winner in the class with Arsenal, and now about to lift the trophy for Portsmouth, a team he joined two seasons ago, and then he thought maybe his career was all but over there. Far from it. So Bobby Robson, today's chief guest of honour, about to hand it over to him, and you can just imagine the response it's going to get.
0: utter jubilation. How did you as supporters feel when you realised that you were now the owners and you have achieved what you set out to do?
1: It was pretty remarkable. The fans over time had really got on board with this. Very, very proud that we were a community-owned club. Portsmouth, you know, it's a one-club city and it had been lost to us. There was an immense amount of pride. I don't think it entirely sunk in for some of us that had worked on this sort of night and day for so long until the first home game a couple of weeks later, which was actually the last game of the season. We were already relegated. We had Sheffield United, who had a chance to be in the playoffs. We had nothing to play for. And we had a full house, you know, 20,000 in Fratton Park. Somebody had said, well, Ashley, you and Ian are going to have to go out on the pitch before the game. Why? He said, well, this needs to be a focal point for everything that's been achieved. So Ian and I were sort of wheeled out just before the kickoff into the center of the pitch and we sort of looked round. and I remember four sides of the ground standing ovation of directed at me and Ian but of course it was about much more than just the two of us. Ian and I just looked at each other in the center circle both lifelong Pompey fans with tears in our eyes and didn't quite know what to do. And I think that's when it really really struck home about what had been achieved but also what the weight on our shoulders that we had now for all of those people that had fought hard to save their football club and you know these aren't a lot of them aren't rich people they're people that have given up holidays you know or saved up money over months to be able to chip in and do their bit and it was now our responsibility to make sure the club survived not just survive but also thrive.
0: Were you treated like a hero by those supporters when they saw you in the bars and pubs and in the stands?
1: Yeah for a while I guess we were but it it soon became a reality because we were then responsible for what was happening. And the first couple of years, particularly, were not easy on the pitch. You know, we underperformed. We didn't do as well as we could. And you have to deal with, the same as any football club owner, you have to deal with the frustrations of the fans. We were always given a great reception by fans, but equally, fans wanted to ask questions and want to know why we were not doing as well as they thought we should it wasn't all glory there was (laughs) there's plenty of difficult times ahead as well
0: just tell us a little bit Ashley about what it was like when you got to the very lowest point in the pyramid and you almost dropped out of the league altogether which for Portsmouth who'd won the FA Cup a few years earlier down at the very bottom of the football league and were in danger of going out of it what did that feel like?
1: Yeah, that was pretty horrendous. I guess the big moment for me is we were away to Rochdale on a Tuesday night. We got beat 3-0. No disrespect to Rochdale at all, but for Pompey fans, that was a pretty low moment. And I remember driving back, a couple of us in the car, same guy again, the, the then chairman Ian McInnes and I in the car on the way back, having a really Not an argument, but certainly a heated debate about what we were going to do because we can't possibly be the people responsible for taking Pompey out of the football league. We decided that we were going to have to make changes in the football management side. And we were going to have to bring somebody in who was going to sort of firefight our way out of the league. Contacted some of the other directors on the way back and we organised discussions the first thing in the morning across the board. And the board decided very quickly that we're going to fire the manager and appoint a caretaker and try and get ourselves out of the mess. It worked. It was a tough decision. We didn't want to be the sort of people that hired and fired managers. Unfortunately, we ended up doing a bit more of that than we ever thought we would. But each time we did it, it was for the right reason. And that was Guy Whittingham? It was Guy, yes, who's a Pompey legend, which made it even tougher. Guy played for Pompey. He's one of our top scorers of all time in a season. He's a lovely guy. His family are connected with Portsmouth. I'm pleased to say that Guy does still talk to me now if I see him. But, but uh, you know, I can understand why at the time he probably didn't like us much at all.
0: Very difficult thing for you to have to do. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in the position of, yes, I'm a journalist, but primarily a football fan. And the idea that when you're used to going to sport your club every week and you like the manager, don't like the manager, whatever, none of it's really your responsibility. If you call for the manager's head or you think it's time for him to go, you don't have to actually talk to him about it. And the idea of... Speaking to a club legend such as Guy Whittingham, as a fan, really, which is what you were primarily, can I ask a little bit more about that process, about having to actually have that conversation and his immediate reaction?
1: I was quite lucky, Jackie, because I didn't have to do it. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> although I might have been one of the people that triggered it, you know, it was decided that it would be a discussion between the chairman, the TV executive and Guy but I mean, just to pick up on your point about changing from a football fan to be in a position where these things you have, can have a direct impact on, that is a, a very relevant point. At the time that we were doing all this, I guess I'd probably been watching Pompey for 40 years since so my mum took me as a baby, effectively. And I got used to ups and downs of, of, of watching Pompey and the end of the game you might retire to the pub with your friends and you moan about the manager or you moan about the striker or whoever it is you're going to moan about and that's part of footballing life as for every football fan in the country but when you suddenly find yourself sat at the front of the director's box you feel every result far more than you did as a normal fan every win is is a a relief more than a celebration and every defeat is a real blow to the system and you sit there worrying and the whole week about what you're going to do to try and change this because of the weight on your shoulders and you know what it feels like for the other Pompey fans and how important that result is to them you know in some respects it was a bit of a relief to return to being a normal fan when I could sit at the back and moan or cheer like everybody else is in the stadium
0: and has it affected the way you now view club owners are you thinking well I'll give them a bit more leeway and I know what a difficult job that is Or are you even more of a harsh critic than before, bearing in mind, you know, if they're not doing things the right way, for example, not communicating properly, which is such a key element in the relationship between the club and supporters.
1: I'm probably more of a harsh critic and it's for exactly the reason that you gave at the end there. Communication, transparency and engagement with fans is so important. And fans are so much more forgiving if you do that. And we discovered that for ourselves. And that's when I get frustrated. There's some owners out there that are just doing crazy things with their club. Some of them doing fraudulent things with their club in recent years. That's inexcusable. That's terrible. But there's a whole load of other owners that are actually, they're okay. They're trying to do the right thing. But what they don't do is communicate that. And then they wonder why their fans get at them. And you reach this point where sort of owners are sort of so fearful of being in front of their fans because they think all they're going to do is get lambasted and shouted at. That There's a communication breakdown. I now work for the Football Supporters Association. That's one of the things that we try to do, to work with clubs and work with supporters to build that link, to build that engagement, because it can make such a difference at every single level of the game.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And when I speak to club owners and directors and say that to them, there's definitely that element of, oh, but the supporters don't understand anyway, so we may as well just not front up because they just don't get it they have their idea of this and that but there are different ways of communicating it doesn't always have to be on a a local radio phone in does it it doesn't always have to be in a room full of supporters it can be a case of putting an article on the website explaining what you're trying to do there are different ways of communicating and as long as you have good motives which most of them will have then letting fans know what you're trying to achieve and what the barriers are to achieving that will surely only benefit them
1: Absolutely. And you can build relations with some of your leading supporter reps and groups, and they can help build that connection to the wider fans. So it doesn't mean as an owner, you've got to spend half your time sitting in front of rooms full of supporters, although it's good to do that on occasion. You've got to use and build that wider network to make this a two-way thing. It's all about the collaboration. You You need those supporters. They're the lifeblood of the club, both financially, but also just from an emotional perspective. So they're incredibly important.
0: In the ball Dream is partnered by Lion Trust, an independent asset manager that invests in a positive future. Lion Trust's sustainable investment team seeks companies that help create a cleaner, safer, and healthier society, empowering and inspiring the wider community, and seeks to generate attractive returns for investors. Right now, Lion Trust wants to give you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. Just head to liontrust.co.uk forward slash theathletic. Answer the question you could win. Now, this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. Find out more at liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. Ashley, before we go on to the process of selling the club, tell us if you would, this is the best bit, I think. <laughs> you can tell us about the, the highlights that you had um, as owners of Pompey. During that time, what what were the best bits?
1: We built some fantastic fr- friendships and relationships. You know, when we were thrown together, most of the people that were working heavily at the time of taking over the club, but also running the club, most of us didn't really know each other before. So f- those relationships were fantastic. The day that we actually won in the High Court, or, or effectively on the steps of the High Court, was a tremendous day. A day that a lot of people never believed could happen. There were so many streams of work that people contributed to. And at the end of it, after four hard years trying to get out of League Two, we had the two games. We were away to Knox County, which is the game that we meant we actually got promoted to League One. We were lucky enough to have six or 7,000 Pompey fans able to get tickets for that game. So there was a huge support up there. That was an incredible day. And being part of that, Instead of being one of the fans that ran on the pitch, being part of it, stood with the manager and the players. You know, that was strange in itself. And then a week or so later at home against Cheltenham, when having not led the league for the entire season, we ended up as champions of League Two. And that in itself is quite an emotional thing for Pompey fans. I I said to Paul Cook, the manager leading up to that week, I said, Paul, you know, we've won every other division except for League Two. And we've also won the FA Cup. We've never won League Two. And he said, well, we better do that then, Ash. For the Pompey fans to, to get back out of League Two, to tick off another league as one that we've won at home, having not led the league all season, was an, an amazing day. And another day when, when a number of us had tears in our eyes. And it was great to be able to celebrate it with those people that we've been through all that trouble and strife with for a number of years.
0: That has to be the best way to do it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And to do it at home as well was amazing. You know, another perk of the directors, you know, we had we, we had the League Two Championship trophy and um I was able to take it home for an evening. Took it home and the kids got the pictures taken with it and a couple of the, my friends that live nearby I phoned them up and said, I'll come around now, see what I've got and they came round and had the League Two trophy there and they had some pictures taken with it. To be that close to it and then I think the day after, actually, we won that, we had a, the council put on a thing on the on Southsea Common for us. You know, the bus ride, getting the, the team down there and then thousands of fans. And again, being part of that as part of the, with the players and the managers and the directors, instead of just being a fan, was a, a real reward for a lot of the hard work that I've put in. We wait confirmation of the scores. That is it! champions they won league two in the most dramatic of circumstances it's finished Portsmouth six Cheltenham town one elsewhere it was Hartlepool two Doncaster Rovers one Grimsby one
0: Plymouth one Pompey's four-year odyssey of league two is over and they will exit the basement division as champions So that was a significant period in your life and in the history of Portsmouth Football Club. But what about the next phase when it came to selling the club in 2017? What was the process there and how did you feel about it?
1: We'd always said that if there was a real offer from what we considered to be a decent person, then we would have to put that out to our members to to have a vote. When we first heard that Michael Eisner was interested, they put a great deal of effort into trying to win us over and talk about their emotional involvement with the club and the city and how keen they were to continue to keep Portsmouth the community club that we turned it into. I think a number of us were cynical. I guess we also found it difficult to relinquish the club so quickly after everything we've been through. But as a supporters' trust, what we did is try to hammer out as much as possible to protect the club in the in the long term if Michael was going to take over, but also to put together as an informed report as possible to enable our members to vote. I have a lot of time for Michael and his family and in the, in their care for the club, but they also ran a very, very sharp business practice in the way that they took over the club. And in my mind, they got a bit of a bargain in what they paid for it. The process, as I say, took about seven or eight months and it ended with a vote in Portsmouth Guildhall, where we had about 2,000 of our shareholders turn up. And overwhelmingly, the members of the Supporters' Trust, the people that had chipped in to save the club on day one, overwhelmingly 80-odd percent of people voted to sell to Michael. And we're now sort of moving into the fifth season of their ownership.
0: Derby County are one of many clubs since Portsmouth to find themselves in financial trouble. Given your experience... What advice would you give to other supporters, trusts, or other fan groups who are thinking of doing what you did or something similar and who'd like to be in that position to be able to come to the rescue of their club should they be required to?
1: The most difficult thing, which is a real frustration for me, is uniting the fan base. You're all supporting the same club, and effectively, you all have the same basic aims, which is you want your club to survive and thrive. But all too often in these situations, you find that the fan base sort of gets at each other. All those conflicting groups that are trying to do things in different ways. One of the things that made it a success at Portsmouth, and it wasn't straightforward, but we were able to focus the fan base to all look for the same outcome. And that's one of the things that needs to happen at Derby. Now, Derby is an incredibly difficult situation. There's been some rule changes since, but also because of the current structure of the financial problem at Derby. They have a lot more secure debt. And I don't think it will be possible for the supporters to take over at Derby, unfortunately. But what they need to do is position themselves as important intermediaries in everything that happens. Supporters should have a say in who takes over their football club. They want to make sure, they want to be doing their own due diligence on any of the people that are connected to their club. And they want to have their own say about who they think is fit to take over. And also... They do that sort of work. It helps position them to be properly engaged with those new owners from day one. That's what needs to happen at all clubs. It's that relationship between fans and owners. It's so
0: important. And if you had your time again, Ashley, when you think about the amazing memories of the FA Cup and playing AC Milan in Europe, you know, the real halcyon days, would you go through it all again, knowing now what has happened?
1: Absolutely. I didn't think I'd ever see my club play at Wembley, that alone, win the FA Cup. And I'm lucky enough to have done that. Almost beating AC Milan at Fratton Park. For many people, that game against AC Milan at Fratton Park is one of the highlights. And that was a good AC Milan team as well. It's not the AC Milan of today. That was a top AC Milan team. And we were 2-0 up against them. Unfortunately, Drew took 2 all. But... Tiene vivo il Portsmouth nella nostra area c'è il cross, attenzione pericolo e c'è il gol, e c'è il gol del Portsmouth Glenn Johnson, secondo palo, gol 2-0 Canu pronto a calciare verso la porta di James Gol! Fantastico gol di Ronaldinho Stupendo gol di Ronaldinho Ecco ancora il Milan, Zambro Zambro, palla dentro uh, Inzaghi, Inzaghi, Inzaghi Gol! Goal! 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 so those were fantastic times and you know what despite all of the pain and hard work that we had with the club went through administration the high times out of that and how our club has pulled together again as a club for the city and how fans get behind it i think we've ended up okay we're still down in league one We've ended up with a far better club we had from a personality perspective, of a community perspective, than we did when we got relegated from the
0: Premier League. When you think about the craziness of that European Super League situation, (laughs) the way it came along out of the blue overnight and had gone away again almost as quickly, although whether it really has gone away is something that remains to be seen. Are there any lessons, you think, Ashley, that football club governance can learn from what happened there and from what's happened with your Pompey Supporters Trust?
1: I think one of the main lessons is that football fans need to have more of a voice, both at national and club level. There are some great examples of clubs around the country where supporters are heard and perhaps um, clubs that have appointed their own supporter directors, so there's a voice in the boardroom. What we mustn't do is have the game run by investors and accountants. That's where the European Super League comes from. They're counting zeros on spreadsheets and believe that the commercial rights going forward to play in a European Super League are worth far more than they can get by competing in, say, the Premier League and the Champions League. That's what we've got to change. We've got to make sure that people realise that these clubs are community assets. They're so important and intrinsic to communities up and down the country. That's where they came from. They weren't created to be floated on the New York Stock Exchange and see how much dividends rich American investors can take out of their club each year. We've got to get back to a bit of the grassroots. It doesn't mean we can't still have the most successful league and clubs in the world. It doesn't mean that we can't have one of the best national teams in the world. It just means that we need to remember why football is there and make sure that fans, and when I mean fans, I mean, domestic fans and people that go and stand on the terraces have their say in how the game is run.
0: Has that ship not sailed, do you think? For smaller clubs, perhaps it's a lot easier for them to have a voice and to be connected to the owners, but the likes of Manchester United, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, do you think it's too hard now for those clubs to really feel as though they can have a genuine voice? Because when you have owners from the other side of the world or discussing far, far away both literally and metaphorically, from the supporters about how they can make more money so that they can be top of the European tree and make more money. Those supporters just don't have a say.
1: I think that, to a certain extent, you're right. We know that we can't suddenly demand that all football clubs are owned by their fans and community ownership. We can't suddenly turn over a multi-billion pound club to its fans and say, tough luck. But we can change the way in which they work and who they consider their stakeholders to be and also what their core aims for the club are and the two making a profit and doing the right thing don't necessarily have to compete with each other there are other ways to look at it yes to a certain extent the ship has sailed with the Premier League we've got some huge behemoths of clubs in the Premier League now but it doesn't mean we still can't introduce a sense check and a way to engage with fans and an understanding of the history and heritage of those clubs, why they're there and who they're there to support. And I think that that's what we have to remember. There's certainly significant room for improvement and a different way that we can work and still be successful.
0: Thanks to Ashley for speaking to us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that and you'd like to hear more insight from those operating at senior levels of football, then do subscribe to the In The Boardroom podcast feed. There you can hear conversations, including my chat with Arsenal's head of women's football, Claire Wheatley. Plus, if your podcast app gives you the option, and if you'd like to, then please feel free to leave us a review. A nice positive one would be lovely. Thank you so much. In the Boardroom from The Athletic is presented by me, Jackie Oatley, and is produced by Steve Hankey. The Athletic. Lion Trust are giving you the chance to win a 1000 pounds shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit LionTrust.co.uk forward slash theathletic and answer the question. This competition is only open to UK residents, and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. That's liontrust.co.uk forward slash theathletic.